This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Friday, October 20th. On the pod today, Hamas has freed two hostages. What does their release mean for the looming ground invasion? We'll hear from a former U.S. Navy hostage negotiator, plus... There's been no movement on aid getting into Gaza. We get an update from Save the Children on the impact of this delay. Then, 33 MPs demand Canada join the international call for an immediate ceasefire. We speak to one of the signatories of that letter. We're going to start our show tonight in Israel, where hostages have been released and a ground invasion looms. The CBC's Susan Ormiston joins me now from Jerusalem. So, Susan, a big development. We've learned about a hostage release today. What do we know about this and how it may affect what is to come? It was a really surprising development and a positive one uh, early this evening, Jerusalem time, when it was announced that Hamas uh, militants had released two American hostages. That's Judith and Natalie Ranan. They are from the Chicago area, and they had been visiting relatives on a kibbutz near Gaza on October 7th when that brutal attack happened. So they were not living in Israel. They were visitors. They were kidnapped and forced back into Gaza, along with about 200 other people who were taken hostage. And tonight, Hamas militants said they were releasing them on humanitarian grounds. That's a quote. Uh, raising the idea that perhaps they were in poor health. They are back in Israel and will be reunited soon with their families. Uh, The U.S. Secretary of State did not have any details about their condition um, or how they made the crossing from Gaza back into Israel, ultimately. But it is the first piece of good news of this mad diplomacy that's been all around us over the past 10 days. Negotiations are going on behind the scenes about the other hostages. But David, this also raises the specter and the hope, really, of so many other families who are living with the unknown about how their family members are doing, what their fate is still, whether they're dead or alive in Gaza. This raises hopes that perhaps this is the first of several uh, hostage releases of civilians that are held. We know there are also Israeli soldiers who were forcibly taken and kidnapped. Um, So we don't know whether this sets off a chain of events. We don't know exactly if there was any um, exchange uh, in this uh, release, whether Hamas demanded some things and got something in return. Uh, There's a lot of unknowns. It's early hours yet, but certainly a positive development. A a positive development there. Uh, A lack of development, I guess, is what we'd say at the Rafah border crossing today. Susan, we're expecting aid to go in. What's the situation there? Yeah, success on one side and a failure on the other, a real failure. We had been expecting for days that that Rafah border crossing between Egypt, Egypt controls that crossing, and the southern part of Gaza would open up for at least 20 truckloads of uh, medicines, of water and food to go into Gaza. It would have been the first humanitarian aid to go into Gaza since the war began. And that border border crossing remained closed even after the UN's um, UN's, uh, Antonio Guterres made a mad dash to the Egyptian desert this morning to put pressure 
on the various uh, parties to get that agreement uh, solid and open the gates. It didn't happen. It's, it's bogged down by uh, different people wanting different things, uh, negotiations between the United States, the UN, Israel and Egypt still have not been solved, and so the borders closed. Very disappointing for millions of desperate people in Gaza. We uh, hear from doctors who say hospital generators are failing because they don't have enough fuel, that some hospitals have had to cease operations, we're told by Palestinian authorities. We know that water, fresh water, is in scarce supply and that food is running low. So it is expected that these negotiations will continue and that perhaps within another 24, 48 hours, we're told that that uh, crossing may reopen. But so far, it hasn't. We also are not clear on whether there will be an opportunity for foreign nationals, Canadians and Americans and others who are in Gaza, who have passports, whether they will be allowed to cross back out through Rafa when, once that is open. And I just wanted to add one more thing about this hostage release tonight. It does open up a whole new chapter in effect. It may impact the timing of this much-expected ground assault by Israeli defense forces. We were in southern Israel most of the afternoon, and we were near an area where we saw lots of military activity, uh, fuel trucks, troops on transport, um, other military equipment going down the highway closer to Gaza, a steady stream. We were not allowed to go anywhere past the point where we were. So certainly the Israelis are gearing up for a ground evasion. But how does this hostage, this hostage release impact that timing? Will there be pressure now, fears, to hold off on a ground invasion for fears that that may put the fate of the other 200 hostages there in jeopardy, that it may, um, they may be used as human shields. So we don't know where this is going now, but certainly this is a significant turn in political events here. Okay, Susan, thank you very much. That's the CBC's Susan Ormiston. Well, as Susan mentioned there, two hostages are on their way to a military base in central Israel. This is a picture just released by the Associated Press provided by the government of Israel. It shows Americans, a mother and a daughter, being escorted by Israeli soldiers as they return to Israel. The release is a result of the negotiations between Qatar and Hamas that started after Hamas abducted more than 200 people from Israel following the attack on October 7th. There are still 200 hostages believed to be in Gaza, and as a ground invasion looms, world leaders continue to call for the release of the remaining hostages. Dan O'Shea is a former U.S. Navy SEAL and a former coordinator for the hostage working group with the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, and he joins me now. Dan O'Shea, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Obviously, it's, it's good to see the pictures of, of that mother and daughter being released, but why do you think two people were released, and why do you think they were released now? Well, your last uh, correspondent nailed it. It's about delaying this inevitable IDF ground assault into Gaza. And these these hostages, every one of them are going to be, you know, uh, pawns in this whole debate. And, and frankly, uh, hostage terrorism and grabbing hostages, this is how terrorist organizations like Hamas negotiate with the West. And so th this is a brutal tactic, violates every law of armed conflict statute out there. But this is why they did it, because they grabbed parents, grandparents, 
children, yeah. women and children beyond the soldiers. And so it was a very effective tool because it is going to challenge. Um, uh, there'll be a, a lot of pressure on Israel not to start this ground invasion. And so we can expect more similar tactics uh, like this. It's a great news story. It's amazing. I'm very happy for the family and for this mother and daughter. It's, it's incredible news. But uh, their nightmare has ended, but there's 200 more whose nightmare continues. Do you think it'll be an effective tactic in terms of trying to delay uh, the, the, the invasion by the Israel Defense Forces? Because the, the rhetoric suggests that they're going to go soon, but there are 200 people being held. Uh, listen, I, I'm the, in, the invasion by IDF forces should have gone, should have happened within within a week. And I guarantee the hostage situation has thrown every planning uh, consideration. Uh, it, it's the key factor for I, the IDF because there's intense pressure from the West, from America, any any country that has hostages, they're going to be putting pressure on the IDF because, uh, you know, the IDF, uh, Hamas already stated that they will start executing hostages yeah. if the Israeli Defense Forces airstrikes continue and or you can presume with the invasion. So, yes, this is the deciding factor right now is the hostage situation going on in Gaza. We, we know that the Red Cross was involved in this, but uh, Qatar uh, seems to be a really key player in this. What, what do you make of the role that country is playing in, in these negotiations? How do you think that's working behind the scenes? Qatar has become the Switzerland of the Middle East. They have become very effective. They, they were critical in the Bo Bergdahl negotiation. All the negotiations between the Taliban and the U.S. Uh, leadership all happened in Qatar. They're playing a very critical role. Um, it's also the home of Al Jazeera. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's, it, it, there's a lot of behind the scenes going on, and Qatar is central t- uh, to all of this right now. You know, we've seen groups like Hamas, whether it's Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or the various offshoots uh, of a lot of these groups, kidnap people in the past. And and that's where people like you have come in in terms of doing hostage negotiations and trying to secure the release. I don't recall an incident where so many people were taken and an enormous military force was amassed outside the area where they're being held. Just how does that dynamic complicate things beyond... I don't want to say typical hostage negotiations, but but you know what I mean. This is a very extraordinary circumstance. There's nothing like it. Uh, there's nothing. Like it. I haven't studied hostage terrorism now for 20 plus years, and I've gone back, you know, studied it to the 1979 overthrow of the American Embassy. I've interviewed those hostages, some of the guys on the rescue force of the original organization that was stood up to basically launch that rescue mission. And I can tell you, nothing like Gaza. Um, first off, it's one of the most densely populated places on the planet. Uh, as opposed to Iraq and Afghanistan, where we had some heavy battles, Ramadi, um, the recapture of Ramadi after ISIS took over, and obviously Fallujah 1 and 2. But it, at that, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we own the air, we own the night, we had four operating bases all over, and we don't have anything like this in Gaza. And it's going to be, uh, and nothing like 200 hostages taken in one incident. So this is, this is unparalleled, and it is going to play out on the world stage in the coming days, weeks, and months, because... Thankfully, some, this hostage nightmare ended for this mother and daughter after one week. For some of these hostages, this is going to continue for months and potential years if, uh, if, if past experience with Hamas and Hezbollah and other organizations in that region are going to play out here today. The fact that, that, that these two women were released and uh, they appear to be okay, I, I know the reason given was for humanitarian concerns because apparently the mother is not well. Um, 
what what can we draw from that in terms of an assessment of how the other 200 people might be, or because we don't even know if they're alive, healthy, we don't know their status. Can we draw and divine anything from today? Well, this is good news. It's a positive step. Obviously, that there may be more acts like this, but again, they've got 200 pawns to play in this. And frankly, um, this act of charity is 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 she- as wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. To be frank, um, it's very positive. It's wonderful news for the family. But like I said. Um, there may be more incidents like this, but uh, for the most part, this is going to drag out because the only bargaining chip Hamas has right now are these sausages, and they're going to use them and hold on to them for as long as it takes for them until they feel like they're secure again. So, so given that the stated goal of Israel in all of this is the eradication or at least uh, destruction of the military capacity of Hamas and, and the ground invasion of Gaza, it seems to be the clearest path for them to achieve their stated goal. You've already talked about how Hamas has threatened to execute hostages. There are civilians uh, by the hundreds of thousands inside Gaza. There are these moral and operational challenges that all of that presents to the IDF once they start their operation. How can they do this in a way that, that protects hostages? Or is it just once the invasion starts, all bets are off? <coughs> The, the the problem is that they don't know where all the hostages are being held. Yeah. They could be in 200 different locations. They could be in 50 different locations. But, you know, and with the tunneling system that we know exists and how much of it has been mapped out by the uh, Israeli intelligence, there are so many complicating factors that there is no easy way that this is going to play out. But, uh, you know, there has been no, in my mind, I can't think of any battle uh, a challenge facing commanders and troops on the ground than knowing that, you know, wherever they're, wherever they're going into Gaza, they're potentially, again, getting in a firefight. They could be getting in a firefight with where the hostages are being held. Mm. Um, so, again, nothing like it in the history of, uh, that, I, that I can recall, especially in the, in the modern era. And uh, this is going to play out on the world stage in the coming weeks, days, and months. So, so what are you, you watching for next, Dan O'Shea? Uh, I know this is an unprecedented event, as you said, but what what, what we expect to see on, on the hostage uh, track on that side of, of the negotiations? What are you watching for? Well, I'm watching for if indeed when the IDF launch in Gaza and start the, start the ground campaign, and not just the airstrikes, because they've already done a lot of airstrikes. They've taken out a lot of Hamas infrastructure, presumed infrastructure. A lot of it's a lot of devastation already in Gaza. Uh, you've got a million plus refugees that have moved from the north to the south, or attempted to move from the north to the south. So this thing is it, there is no resolution. I mean, again, every every battle plan, no battle plan to s- survives first contact. And there are just so many complicating factors for uh, the, not only the generals but the troops on the ground. And uh, you know, we, again, no one expected these two to be released like they were. And, you know, but tomorrow this could all change. There, there could be an execution video in, in the next uh, hostage scenario. So this this will play out and uh, no one knows at this point. Yeah, it's a, it's a grim stuff. Uh, uh, Dan O'Shea, former U.S. Navy SEAL and former coordinator for the hostage working group with the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Israel's military continues to strike targets in Gaza. This is footage provided by Israel Defense Forces. It says these strikes destroyed tunnel shafts, munitions warehouses, and dozens of operational headquarters. 
Meanwhile, on Israel's northern border, the IDF and Hezbollah continue to exchange fire. The flare-up in fighting has forced Israel to order the evacuation of an Israeli town of 20,000 people situated close to the Lebanese border. All of this is happening ahead of an anticipated ground invasion into Gaza. It's an operation that many analysts fear could prompt other actors in the region to enter into this conflict. Here with me now is William Cohen. He served as U.S. Secretary of Defense under former U.S. President Bill Clinton. Secretary Cohen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I, I wonder, sir, how would you describe the current state of this conflict from what's happening in Gaza to what's happening at Israel's northern border with Lebanon? Well, first, uh, to say uh, thank you for the release of the uh, two uh, prisoners that were held. Um, thank you to the Qataris for intervening. I, th I think they may be the ones who had the line in to help get them out. Um, but it's an attempt by the uh, Hamas to change the narrative. Uh, we're not talking uh, as much about the Israelis going in right now as we are about possibly getting hostages out. So they've changed the narrative somewhat because the word had been on the street, so to speak, uh, that all the hostages were gone. And therefore, there was no inhibition on the part of the Israelis from going in uh, and taking out as much of Hamas as they possibly could. It's something that President Biden was urging some caution on. He said, uh, we understand that you have to go after Hamas, but do so prudently with as much concern for killing innocent Palestinians as possible. And so that was his measure, uh, I think, last night of, uh, of, of hope that we can... We can work together to try to get the hostages out and also try to take whatever measures we can against Hamas uh, in conjunction with Arab allies in the region. And he was saying, basically, uh, don't do what we did. Don't let anger blow out uh, the lamp of the mind. So as you go in and try to uh, level a, a really discreet attack upon Hamas, be careful. You don't kill a lot of innocent civilians because um, the world will change very quickly. And uh, you will not be seen as having been a victim of a horrendous attack. Uh, you'll be seen as uh, the villain in all of this with people saying you had a choice not to kill civilians and you decided to go anyway. So it's very difficult for the Israelis right now. I think they're still uh, poised to go in. They are still leveling infrastructure uh, and uh, they're going to continue to do that. But I think at least they're going to have some caution here. Well, two are still alive, uh, thankfully. Uh, there may be 200 more or 300 more that are ha being held captive. And uh, the Israelis want them out. Uh, everybody who has a family member held hostage want them out safely. So it's a, a right. tougher issue for Israel right now. So, so just explore that a little bit further, because two out today, as you say, which, which is good news, but 200, we have no idea what their status and condition is. And, and the, the operating theory is that Hamas has kind of done this today to buy some time to forestall the Israeli invasion. And there's reporting by Bloomberg that the U.S. and Europe have been urging Israel to hold off. How patient do you think Israel will be, uh, given everything that has happened in the last two weeks? I think they will be patient uh, for a while, but not too long. Uh, Tom Friedman, who writes for the New York Times, had a really interesting piece this week. And he talked about what Israel should be doing is not declaring that the first thing to do is to go in and destroy Hamas, but to get the hostages out and also build a support alliance with the Palestinian Authority, but in, in, in a real-term sense. The Palestinian Authority has been both corrupt and weak 
And they have been weakened by not only the lack of support from the other Arab countries, but uh, according to Tom Friedman, by uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself. Mm -hmm. By trying to lower the power of the Palestinian Authority, uh, he has thought uh, that he'll never have to face a two-state solution. I think what President Biden said last night in a terrific speech is that a two-state solution may be the only hope that we can have for peace in the Middle East in the long term. Yes, uh, certainly the two-state solution is seen as, as the best path for peace, but right now Israel is potentially facing a two-front war because there is the operation massing outside of Gaza and there is this activity at the northern border with Hezbollah, the evacuation of, of, of large settlements up there by Israel. And there is a thought that depending on what happens in Gaza, it could provoke Hezbollah at the northern border. Uh, do, do you think, what, what, and, what, what and do you think? And Syria, and Syria, right. And Syria, by the way, Syria and then Iran. So it won't be just a, uh, a two-front, it could be three and four. And that's the danger that all are facing now, that if this really starts to spin uh, out of control uh, and they have that attack from the north and Israel will respond heavily, at that particular point, Iran will say, we can't allow our, uh, our friend Hezbollah to be attacked in this fashion, so we'll start trouble. We might start it in Yemen and have Yemen fire some missiles uh, into Israel, or possibly into Saudi Arabia. They can reach Saudi Arabia as they have done in the past. So this has the capacity to set the entire region uh, on, on fire. And that's why this is one of the most dangerous, perilous moments, I think, in Middle East history. So on, on that point, the Pentagon revealed on Thursday that two American bases, one in Iraq, one in Syria, they were repeatedly targeted by drone attacks. And then also that a U.S. Navy warship intercepted three land attack cruise missiles and several drones launched by Houthi forces in Yemen that were potentially heading towards Israel. I, I mean, that speaks to the volatility you're talking about. I mean, how worried are you that this could just widen out into this much broader conflict right now? Well, as I mentioned, they could be headed to Israel. They could be headed to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. If Saudi Arabia comes under attack, they have been at odds with Iran uh, for as long as I can remember. There's been some rapprochement between the Iranians and the Saudis, but the, still the tension is there. The other Gulf countries, they don't want to see Iran prosper in the region because Iran is a revolutionary country trying to destabilize the region and take over control. So all of the moderate Arab countries in the region have to be on their toes at this particular moment. They could become embroiled in this. Uh, and so Iran is looking for all of the weak spots. How many fires can they create uh, that um, could possibly bl um, be blown into conflagration? Mm. We have to be careful. I think it's very dangerous. And that's why the United States, why President Biden said, take care. Uh, go in if you have to, but take care not to do what we did. And that is exercise some restraint. We understand you have to go after Hamas, but do it with as much care for innocent civilians as you can. And I think um, Iran wants to stoke as much discontent in the region as they can to create the problem for the Israelis on all fronts, as you've mentioned. And we have to have our forces on the highest alert in the region. We have forces in um, Qatar, by way of example, the al Jadid Air Base is there. We have some forces uh, certainly in Syria, uh, and we have forces elsewhere, uh, not to mention potentially going into, um, into Israel. Um, so we have a lot at stake, but every country in the region has a lot at stake. And that's why Hamas cannot 
be allowed to continue to be a a state on the border with Israel that's dedicated to Israelis' destruction. That simply is not going to take place. The Israelis have said, you know, never again. Yeah. We went through one genocide attempt, not going through another. Uh, and they will fight and they will they will take down the temple if necessary, the temple of uh, peace throughout the region. So um, I think uh, there's a lot at stake and we have to be concerned about it. The good news coming out today is two hostages got a chance to re- rejoin their families, hopefully in the very near future. There may be other hostages alive. Uh, if they are alive, that presents a problem, as we said, to Israel. But if it comes down to the hostages versus whether Israel is going to leave Hamas in the status quo, I think the Israelis will say we have to take them out. It's an awful moral calculus to be faced with, yes. you, you know, and, and, and you, you've referenced like all of the anguish you see in Israel over the atrocities of October 7th. And then we see all of this rage in the Arab street throughout the region and, and, and you know, the, the, the many shifting political alliances and agendas that you've outlined. I mean, what are you watching for next to see where potentially this goes? Because it, it, it's such a, a powder keg right now. It, it seems like anything could set it off even further. Well, it, it, it depends on whether uh, the Israelis can exercise any sort of restraint uh, at the moment. Again, to the extent that uh, Hamas is still firing missiles at them, to the extent that Hamas is holding hostages, to the extent that Hezbollah up in the north is firing uh, some strikes into Israel, the Israelis will exercise some restraint. But you have to understand the Israeli psychology at this point, psyche. They survived the Holocaust, the most terrible period in, in recorded history. They are, they thought they had a state where they could be safe. Now they understand they can't be safe with Hamas declaring their destruction, the attempt to destroy them. They hope to work with the Palestinian Authority to create a separate independent state for, for the Palestinians. And the Palestinians need this. They need to have some reconciliation as well. And so the two-state solution is possible, but it can't be possible if the two nations don't trust each other. So trust has to be earned again. The Palestinians have to have a new election for uh, for the Palestinian Authority, have people who really uh, will work with the Israelis. And then to have Saudi Arabia, if the Biden administration can pick up and put that deal together with Saudi Arabia, they have it with Bahrain uh, and also uh, with with UAE, then there's a chance that Iran can be isolated and the powers that are in favor of peace can be strengthened. And that means Israel can be safe in the homeland that they they deserve and have. William Cohen, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Thank you. The humanitarian aid that was expected to start arriving in Gaza today has been delayed. Officials from Egypt, Israel, the United States, and the United Nations have been trying to work out issues with the shipments, including inspecting them for weapons. Speaking at the Rafah border crossing today, the UN Secretary General stressed the need for the trucks to move into Gaza as quickly as possible. Repeatedly said that uh, uh, the barbaric attack by Hamas uh, need to be condemned. But I've also said they cannot be a pretext for a collective punishment of the Palestinian people. 
it's absolutely essential to respect international humanitarian law, it's absolutely essential to protect civilians, and it's absolutely essential to make humanitarian aid come to the Palestinians in need. Two of the trucks waiting at the border are from Save the Children, an organization that's been helping Palestinian children since the 1950s. President and CEO of Save the Children Canada, Danny Glenwright, joins me now from Toronto. Danny Glenwright, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, The deal was for 20 trucks to get in, which is not a lot when you consider the need, but it's better than zero. So, So what are you hearing from people in Gaza right now about what the situation is looking like? David, it's nothing short of a humanitarian catastrophe right now, which is why we're trying to put on so much pressure for a ceasefire. We're speaking to our colleagues in Gaza daily, and the situation has gotten worse and worse all the time. At the moment, there are one million children on the brink of a serious crisis hanging by a thread. We know that a child is dying right now in Gaza every 15 minutes. And we're speaking to our staff there, and five of them have had their homes destroyed. One of them has moved with the mass exodus of people from North Gaza to South Gaza and is in a shelter meant for 300 people that's now supporting 25,000 people, which is the population of Whitehorse. Imagine that population in in a room the size of a banquet hall. And these people have been for almost two weeks now without any access to humanitarian assistance. And before this latest escalation of hostilities, the population of Gaza relied on 100 trucks coming in every day of humanitarian assistance. So we're talking about a severe humanitarian crisis. You know, I was speaking to my colleagues today, and all of us said, you know, none of us remember a moment where we've heard reports of doctors having to operate on people without anesthesia in any crisis in which we've worked. And that's the situation right now. There's no electricity, there's no fuel, there's no food, there's no clean water. It's a disaster. I I remember seeing reports of doctors doing surgeries without anesthetic in Haiti after the earthquake because the need was so urgent and the crisis was so severe. And I remember my colleague Paul Hunter, who has been in Israel, reporting on that from Haiti. And it's a similar situation as you speak of. And, And you mentioned one child every 15 minutes. And that is such a massive portion proportion of the population inside Gaza because half the population is under the age of 18. So how is this crisis specifically affecting young people and children? Well, and that's who we are thinking about right now and always. And the population of Gaza, every child there has spent their entire childhood living under a 16-year blockade. So a situation of a humanitarian emergency has been the only reality they've ever known. Before this crisis, we spoke to children in Gaza And three out of four children there had no hope for the future. So we're dealing with right now a population where that was the situation a few weeks ago. You can imagine the psychosocial effects on these children right now. Unfortunately, a large part of my job is being in places where I have to look into the eyes of children who are terrified. And it never gets any easier. And it's keeping me awake right now thinking about all these children in Gaza who are sheltering in parking lots in you know centers with 25,000 people without anywhere to use the bathroom without any food with aerial bombardments going on constantly and i can't imagine the long-term effects that that's going to have on those children and that's really what worries us at save the children so after the president's uh, visit was announced to israel and, and the secretary of state blinken announced that there was an agreement with israel to facilitate humanitarian aid I I would imagine that gave a sense of hope uh, to some degree, but also there is a sense of urgency and and the obvious need. And now these delays. I mean, what what is is the impact 
of this delay and the uncertainty about whether any kind of aid is going to be able to get in there now because of the security challenges? Well, quite frankly, the impact is more lives are, are being lost. And that's what's happening right now. And opening a humanitarian corridor is one thing, but what we need and what we're calling for, and Save the Children has joined 400 organizations around the globe, from every corner of the globe, calling for a ceasefire because getting aid in is one thing, but we need safety to be able to deliver it. And right now there is no safe place in Gaza. So we can't be asking people to come and collect aid from us when there are still bombardments happening overhead. So the, this, the corridor is one thing, but what we really need is a, a ceasefire. And what we need here in Canada is a diplomatic partner to be pushing for that, because that's critical right now. Until the bombardments stop, until there's a cessation, of, a cessation of hostilities, we won't actually be able to deliver that aid. So, yes, we're hopeful. We've got our truck there. It's ready to go. But 20 trucks, it's a drop in the bucket. And what's happening in Gaza right now is an extreme situation. So we're, we continue to be worried and we continue to wait for that partnership. There's only so much we can do as humanitarian agencies. We, we had news today that 33 members of parliament have signed a letter to the prime minister asking Canada to join the calls for that ceasefire. Uh, but uh, you've seen it. There's very little appetite for that, it seems, uh, from Israel and certainly from the United States. Uh, it was a week ago today that uh, the U.S. at the White House, they were asked about it, and the spokesperson for the president called the idea disgusting because they believe in Israel's right for self-defense. And, and the argument is that Hamas can resupply and, 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 and it would benefit from a ceasefire. How hopeful are you, given the, that state of play uh, and those positions that have been expressed that you can get what you need to get the aid in? You know, I ask world leaders, I ask the Prime Minister to think about the fact that one million children are right now hanging by a thread on the brink of a serious catastrophe with no aid, no food, no clean water. And that's what we are thinking about at Save the Children. And the only way to do anything about that is a ceasefire. And I think that until they are considering that option, it's a, an increasingly tragic situation. And, and we've joined many other humanitarian organizations and other agencies signing letters ourselves. We're doing all kinds of advocacy behind the scenes publicly to raise awareness about these children. Because a, a million children, that's more than the population of Ottawa. This is a huge catastrophe. And it's disproportionate to think that these children who had no role in this crisis are suffering in this way. And I think that, um, you know, not allowing aid to those children is against international humanitarian law to civilians and children. And that's what we are calling for right now is a humanitarian corridor, a ceasefire. We need to get in there and provide medical supplies, hygiene kits, clean water, food to these children, or they'll be suffering further. And I'm thinking about children as well, trapped under the rubble of these buildings where there's no one in there to support them, to help dig them out. It's, it's horrifying all around. And I understand it's complicated, but at Save the Children, we're driven by one imperative, and that's that children, no matter where they are, deserve the right to be protected. No. And right now, those children need that. Yep, and and I can I've, I've got two little boys myself, so I, I understand I, I understand that. Um, just to ask you a final question about the volume of aid, you talked about the twenty trucks, right? You, you called it a drop in the bucket, and, and it, like that's a one-time delivery of twenty trucks as it stands right now. And you said it was a hundred trucks a day going in there. Um, how confident are you that should you get what you want in terms of the, uh, uh, th that there would be an opportunity to supply the volume of aid that is clearly going to be required inside Gaza? 
Well, I'm confident. I mean, aid agencies have been, uh, like Save the Children, we've been working in Gaza since 1953. Before this current crisis, 80% of the population of Gaza relied on international agencies like Save the Children to be able to exist. So we are ready to deliver this support. We're standing ready at the border with our trucks. Agencies like Save the Children, we're there, we're ready to go. But what we need is safety to be able to get in both to deliver the aid, but also to make sure that our staff that are there, I mean, we're, we've got many staff in Gaza, and I've been hearing from them, and they're terrified, they're homeless, they've had to flee their homes, they're out of support as well, and wherever they can, I'm also hearing reports of our staff running around when it's safe to do so, delivering the little water that we had that remains there to people most in need. And we need to be able to continue to cascade that and amplify that in the, in the days ahead, or else it's going to become a real serious catastrophe. There's no other word to describe it. Danny Glenn Wright, President and CEO of Save the Children Canada. I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you. Here at home, there are growing demands from Parliament Hill for the Prime Minister to call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. And some of those calls are coming from inside Justin Trudeau's own caucus. The CBC's Rafi Bujakanian joins me now. So Rafi, today you got your hands on this letter now in wider release to the Prime Minister. Tell us about what's in it. David, it's signed by more than 30 MPs, a majority of them liberals, including many parliamentary secretaries, former cabinet minister Omar al-Gabra. It's directed at the prime minister, and it is asking for Canada to join these international calls for a ceasefire. It also says Canada's long been a voice for peace, that it needs to stand up for international law, insists on Canada doubling down on the opening of that humanitarian corridor that has not happened so far. Now, there are MPs from other parties on it. Green leader Liz May, for example, as well as NDP House leader Peter Julian have signed it. But of course, those parties have been asking for a ceasefire for a while. That's how the NDP began question period this week. And whenever we've heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau address questions around a ceasefire, he's typically said Israel has a right to defend itself within the bounds of international law. Now, today, Trudeau did acknowledge that there are divisions within his caucus, that there is there are different perspectives on this issue. But, uh, well, the fact that a letter signed by nearly two dozen Liberal MPs is is actually asking for a ceasefire, it's starting to show that those differences of opinion are getting more vocal. Yes, you can see that in some of the social media posts from their MPs about how the conversations they're having internally. But just a a quick final point. Uh, The letter, we have it there. You can see the signatures being put on the screen, some of the ones you outlined, including a couple of the people running for the Ontario Liberal leadership in Naderskin Smith and Yasser Nakfi. Have we heard anything yet from the Prime Minister's office? I've not seen anything. No, we did reach out to them for for comment on this. Uh, I've been referred to Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie's office, so we'll see what they may have to say about it. Okay, uh, Rafi, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Rafi Bujikanian. For more on this letter to the Prime Minister, I'm joined by one of the Liberal signatories, Ontario MP Salma Zahid. Ms. Zahid, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, you didn't just sign this letter, you helped organize this letter. Why did you feel that this step was necessary? I chair Canada-Palestine Parliamentary Friendship Group and uh, we had a meeting of that and uh, this was discussed, the need was discussed. Uh, See, it's really very important that uh, the voice uh, of, uh, like the loss of uh, civilian lives uh, be like uh, considered, like uh, I'm really like sad to see the humanitarian crisis unfolding before our eyes. So that's why I did that. Have you had any response yet from the Prime Minister, his office, his staff, or anyone higher up in the chain of command in the government? 
theater has just gone out so uh, i was also out i just came back to my office right so so that's a no then so it, it has seemed pretty clear to me uh, ms zahid uh, that the the, the, the Canadian government, at least the Prime Minister, is not prepared to call for a ceasefire. They, they speak uh, quite often on Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law, and uh, they've not uttered anything approaching this. So how do you expect this has been received and will be received by the Prime Minister? See, like I tell you, like I have been on the phone constantly since this crisis began with my constituents and with my like uh, friends and neighbors in the Palestinian broader Muslim community, the Arab community, and they all have been hurting. Uh, the incident at the El Ahli Baptist Hospital in particular has really shook the community. It is an unspeakable territory. So I've spoken to the people who have lost family members in Gaza and who have family members who are still trapped there. Uh, they, they are worried. It's a, like we are seeing in front of us like a humanitarian crisis unfolding there. There is no food, no electricity, no water, no medical supplies. New, new, no humanitarian aid is just entering uh, that region uh, of Gaza. So the 20 trucks that were reportedly like uh, from as yet they have not, nothing has mm -hmm. gone there. So, like, my call is for the protection of the innocent civilian lives caught uh, there in that region. There have been many calls internationally and domestically for a ceasefire uh, for, for the same reasons you've outlined there. The counter-argument against it from people is that Israel has the right to defend itself. And if you take a break in the military operations, it could allow Hamas to regroup, rearm, uh, and further entrench its defensive position in Gaza. What, what's your response um, to those arguments? Uh, see, I condemn the killing of the innocent civilians, regardless of like uh, uh, who they are. Like uh, uh, this, uh, like these, uh, I don't know if you have seen, like you must have seen like a lot of uh, pictures and the videos coming out, seeing the loss of the young children. It is really very sad. As a mother, it's really like... Uh, uh, very difficult to see that. So we have to make sure that the uh, lives of the innocent civilians are protected. And that's why uh, when I spoke at the Take Note debate on Monday also, I said that it is really very important that Canada be a strong voice for uh, peace and make sure that we be a strong voice for a ceasefire. Because if this continues, longer this, continue, this conflict goes on, more innocent civilians will pay with their lives. None of so I, that's why I really say that Canada joined the international calls for an immediate ceasefire. Canada must act before more innocent children are killed. Uh, none of Canada's uh, core allies uh, have as yet called for a ceasefire. The United States, the United Kingdom, uh, sort of the big players in NATO, the G7, and, and, and the key players in Europe. Uh, would you expect, do, do you expect that Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, I, would break I, ranks with those countries? Uh, I hope that uh, uh, seeing uh, the targeting of the innocent civilians, uh, people will step up and call for a ceasefire. I really condemn the international targeting of innocent civilians, regardless of their political views. And I really worry for the safety of the innocent civilians caught in the middle of this escalating conflict, especially the children. I'm a mother of two young boys, 25 and 23 year old. So 
as a mother i cannot imagine the grief those mothers are going who ha- who are seeing the loss of their children there are 33 MPs uh, with their signatures on, on this letter, uh, about two dozen from the Liberal Caucus, the rest from the New Democrats and from the Greens. Was there anyone you approached who refused to sign this letter? Uh, this was uh, this letter, like we had a meeting of the Canada-Palestine Parliamentary Friendship Group and uh, on the request of all the members, like uh, this letter was drafted and sent to all the members. And then I know some uh, members of the parliament shared that among their caucuses and some members outside the Parliamentary Friendship Group also stepped up to sign this letter. I, I can imagine this is um, going to be a, a difficult argument or conversation I- inside the Liberal caucus. We've heard from your colleagues like Anthony Housefather and Ben Carr, for example, uh, on, on this issue saying they don't support a ceasefire, though they do support efforts um, for humanitarian protection of, of civilians inside Gaza. How difficult has this been inside the Liberal caucus uh, to deal with, given the broad range of communities that are represented in your party? Um, uh, one thing I would like to emphasize is that like, uh, it's uh, uh, really important that in Canada we come together and uh, we put an end to like any rising incidents of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism which is happening. In Canada we live in peace with our neighbors while we worry about our friends and loved ones overseas. But it is really very important that as Canadians uh, we are known for patience, compassion. So we must treat each other with patience, kindness, and understanding. And my prayers are with all those deeply worried and traumatized by the events in Israel and in Palestine. And I condemn all incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And I really urge any incidents of hateful violence to be investigated by the proper authorities. There is no place for any hatred in Canada. And I was, the second thing I want to emphasize is that I was elected as member of parliament for the writing of uh, Scarborough Center. Uh, and uh, I was told by the Prime Minister when I first got elected that be a voice of your constituents in Ottawa and since this incident broke out I've been having hundreds and thousands of conversations with my stakeholders, with my constituents, with the uh, Muslim community, the Arab community and uh, everyone is concerned. They are uh, like uh, really grieving seeing the loss of the lives, civilian lives and especially the innocent children and uh, it's uh, like for me very important that I be the voice of the people I represent in Ottawa. No, I, I understand. And, and for people uh, watching along at home who haven't seen the entirety of the letter, it is not just calling for a ceasefire. It does say right off the top, condemns the innocent, the killing of innocent Israeli civilians in the attacks of October 7th by the terrorist group Hamas and, and calling for the release. Violence of, of like violence or like violence by anyone is not right. And sure. we have to make sure that uh, like we stand there uh, to protect the lives of the civilians. So uh, just as a final question, Ms. Ahib, before we let you go, uh, as of right now, I've not yet seen a response from the Prime Minister or the Prime Minister's office. You say you haven't heard one. What do you do if they don't, if the government does not endorse or call for a ceasefire, uh, but continues with its position that Israel has a right to defend itself in accordance with international law? I will uh, abide I will continue be, to be the voice of the people I represent and uh, make sure that we do whatever we can in our capacity as members of parliament to make sure that uh, as members of parliament we use our influence uh, that Canada be a strong voice 
for ceasefire to make sure that innocent civilians are not caught in this escalating conflict because more this conflict goes on we will see loss of civilian life so it is really very important that uh, uh, we make sure that right. this comes to an end Ontario Liberal MP Salma Zahid thank you so much for your time today thank you That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.